Hello and welcome. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Milton McFarlane. Last week, Milton told us some amazing stories from his time as a missionary teacher in the South Pacific in the 1960s and 1970s. Today I'll be talking with Milton about what it was like being a missionary teacher in that period of time and his early life and experiences. For those who missed last week's program, let me introduce Milton again. Milton spent 17 years teaching for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Papua New Guinea, Bougainville and the Solomon Islands. With his wife Betty, Milton went to Bolu on Musau Island, north of the mainland of Papua New Guinea in 1961. One of his duties there, apart from teaching, was to run a hospital. With only rudimentary training as a medical aide and some helpers with similar training, Milton provided simple medical services to local villagers. Welcome, Milton. Thank you. Great to have you back again this morning. I really enjoyed your stories last week and I look forward to our conversation today. Milton, what were you doing before you went to Bolu on Musau Island in 1961? I was a school teacher at Ironside State School in Queensland. I was teaching primary school there. What class did you have? I had grade three one year, and the next I took those children up to grade four the next year, and they went back to grade three and up to grade four, grade three to grade four, and did that for six years. You also were involved in some extracurricular activities at the school. What was that? Yes, in my own time I was teaching swimming, and I was also teaching life-saving as well at, at the school. You were pretty much involved in the church as well, weren't you? Yes, very much Tell so. me about that. Yes, I was an elder at our church as well as a lot of other programs I was doing with the church, a lot of visitation and so forth to the, to the people in, in the, who belonged to that church. You were also involved with young people too, weren't you? Exactly. I spent a lot of time with the young people. We did camps, we did picnics and we did a lot of other things, activities with the young people. Milton, this was the second time you'd been asked to go to Papua New Guinea. You declined the first time. Why did you accept the second time? Well, we felt the call to go the second time. The first time we couldn't go because my wife was sick. But this time we kind of felt the need and I said to Beth, what do you want to do? And she said, yes, we'll go. And that was a straight out answer to prayer. And I said the same, we, we will go to wherever they want me to go. What was your motivation for becoming a missionary teacher? I could be able to help the native people to have a better education and that they could go out and do further work for the church. This was a dramatic change in your life. Very much so, because we were used to having everything at our fingertips, shops down the road, we could do all of that sort of thing and go shopping, have a car and go walk about. But in the islands, those things didn't exist, not where we lived anyway. Did you feel prepared for this? In a way, no, but I knew the Lord was going to be with me and he would help me to get through the difficulties that were, was going to face us both. Tell me about your living conditions on Bolu on Musau. Yes, my living conditions were that if we wanted a loaf of bread, we had to make it provided we had the flour and the yeast. But sometimes the boat didn't come in on the right time and so we didn't get our supplies. So mainly for the first few months we would live on native food with sweet potato and other things that they provided for us. We also had some supplies we brought up with us from from uh, Australia but they some of them didn't arrive until a little bit later because of the boats and because of the weather. 
the different food would have been a point of adjustment, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, and very much so. Did you like the food there? Not for, not to start with, we didn't, but we did after a while we got used to it. <laughs> did you grow your own vegetables there? Uh, we couldn't do very much, but I did start in about the third year I was there, and we used the phonics, and we were able to grow uh, tomatoes and capsicums and peas and beans near our place on this uh, special stuff that we got from Australia, fertiliser and so on. What was it like being isolated like that? Very much uh, lonely for a while, but then we got used to it because we are so busy with the students and with the surrounding churches and people that we just put our whole hearts 100% into it and made it into a proper life. What, what was the climate like? Very hot, very hot day and night. We never had, we had one change, we'd have the northwest and then we'd have the southeast and both of them were hot and at night time we never had a blanket. The only time we used a blanket was when we got malaria, which was only once on Moosow, but uh, the rest of the time, most times we slept even without a sheet on top. Hmm. What were the major challenges you and Betty faced in relation to your living conditions? Well, we were living near the girls' house, which was okay, but to go to the school, we had to go down a hill, down past the power station, which didn't work very well, and then up another very steep hill to the church and to the school. Now, I would do that walk maybe two or three times a day, depending on what I had to do. I was teaching school, I was teaching grade six, looking after the other teachers and helping them to teach grade three, four, and five. And eventually my wife also helped me in the teaching program as well. This would have kept you pretty slim, I reckon, just walking all these distances each day. I was the thinnest I've ever been in my life as, as it was then, but that was all right. I was pretty healthy at the stage. I didn't get malaria there. I got malaria some other place. And uh, we were really free of all sickness, which was a blessing from God. How long did it take you to make the adjustment to this new culture? About 12 months, I suppose. It took us about that long. First of all was the language, and then secondly to get to know the people and to work out their ways and their methods and what they wanted to do. I had a few confrontations with some of the people on the villages because they didn't like my ideas and my methods perhaps but we were very kind to them and we helped them and they eventually came and saw my way of things. You had a problem with learning names, didn't you? I certainly did. When we first saw they got off the plane in Port Moresby and we looked at the, the crowd of natives there with fuzzy wuzzy hair, different coloured skins, and I said, how on earth am I going to learn their names? But when we got to Bolu, we had our own students and we soon worked out the different features on the faces and we knew they soon learned their names. I had to learn their names quickly because I was teaching grade six school. So adjusting to names and um, different faces and so forth would have been one of your major challenges, I imagine. It would be, yes, and keeping the children healthy. And at that time, there wasn't much food around because the pigs had come in and eaten all the, the gardens that the previous man had planted. So we did have problems with food, but after about... Two months, we were in full swing with our own gardens growing and with the students all happy with a good meal. How did Betty cope with all these changes? 
with great difficulty, but I still marvel at the way she adjusted herself to it. She threw her whole life into looking after the girls and she looked after the food. She was the main one for looking after the boys' food and the girls' food and preparation and made sure that everything was put properly and they ate all their meals properly. Last week you told us about the fact that you um, were managing a hospital as well as managing a school. Oh, yes, well, back in Rabaul we did a three-week course um, with a doctor from England and we taught, he taught us about malaria, ringworm and different other things they get up there in the islands, scabies and so on. And in three weeks we learned how to do medical uh, work and Bet had one hour's tuition on how to deliver babies, which he did quite successfully on Moosehow. This sounds um, pretty challenging, coming from a white Western culture, going into an isolated environment, crossing the cultures, teaching and doing medical services. Must have been a pretty busy life. Well, we we tried to be in bed by nine o'clock at night, but we were all when the bell would go in the morning at six o'clock. But quite often we would be challenged to go somewhere down to the hospital for bed to deliver a baby or people coming over that needed help urgently. And so quite often we would only have about four or five hours sleep a night. How did you cope with that lack of sleep? With great difficulty. We would go to school and teach. I started teaching at 7 o'clock in the morning. We'd go through till 10 o'clock. They'd have lunch for half an hour and then we'd not go till 12 o'clock. Then they'd have another half an hour break. Then we'd go into work period in the afternoon for the school. And then at half past four, they had time free until they had tea at night and then worship and then a study period. So you're on a work education program. We were. What sort of work were you doing? Me personally, I was supervising the, a lot of the work in the gardens until we had a proper boss boy who could go into the gardens. The first boy we had, the first man we had, he crossed me one day and I crossed him. And he said, I'm going fishing. I said, well, keep going and don't ever come back. And so that's what he did. And then I got another man who was a very good man and he did an excellent job and I could put a lot of the garden into his hands. For the girls, they were in a different garden as well. They had a boss girl themselves and they took their orders from her. And also I would go and supervise them in the afternoon when I had time. Tell me about a typical teaching day on Musao. Oh, we'd start school at 7 o'clock in the morning. We'd, the first lesson would be the religious one, the Bible one. Then we'd, I'd go into different subjects, into grade 6. Then we had a grade 5 teacher and a grade 4 teacher and then a grade 3 teacher. Uh, the rest of the grades 1 and 2 would be over in the village schools. But that was a hard work. I had to supervise my classes as well as help the national teachers to bring them up to the standard that I wanted in that school. What was different about teaching in this new culture? Well, first of all, there was the language thing to start with. The, the students hadn't been taught English very much. They wanted to talk their place talk. They wanted to talk their pidgin English, which I frowned on very deeply, and I said, no, that's not going to happen at all. You have to learn English, and I want to hear you speaking English in my presence. And if that way, within about 12 months, they could all talk a reasonable sort of English. 
They were still able to speak their own dialects and languages, though, weren't they? They talked their own dialects and their own languages in their own time, not where I was. If they, t- So I heard them talking in my presence, then they were in trouble. But other than that, they could talk what they liked. What, the was the ad- what was the advantage of having them speak English well? Well, if they can't speak English, they can't read. And they can't read, they can't go into further education. Because those days, the grade six is only so many could go to high school. And so the top ones had to go in and they had to be able to know how to read and write English. What gave you the most satisfaction at Bolu? Um, yes, the teaching and have them going through to high school and going through to and getting um, as an actual just teaching them to know know them and to bring lift them up their standard and their hygiene and healthiness and all very polite and uh, to see them go on to higher education. I'm getting from you an idea that these people actually value their education? Yes, very much so. What was the outcome for some of your students? Well, we had a president come through eventually from college and he became one of the minister, one of the um, presidents of our mission for the church. And then we had, eventually they had teachers coming through and that lifted the standard up in the school and uh, eventually they went through to be headmasters in their own schools in different areas of the island. I imagine that in later years you would have run across some of these people in in responsible positions, teaching or medicine or administration, being ministers of the church and so forth. Very much so. I can remember, this again down to the Solomons, I taught a boy down there whose name was Silent. And the reason why he was silent because he never cried when he was born. But he became a head teacher, a, a, a doctor. Uh, he went to Sydney to do his studies. He eventually ended up in London and in America and became an orthopedic surgeon and the main surgeon at the uh, base at Honiara. I've looked at some photos of Musso Island online and it seems like a pretty idyllic place. It must have been hard to leave when you were called to go to Roomba on Bougainville. It was very hard because we had been there for eight years. On the crew, we came home on leave every three years because it was so hot up there. We had to go home. But, yes, it was idyllic, and my hobby was to go fishing on a Friday, and I could go out and I could get fish and just relax and think about nothing but fishing. It was great. And what Dad Bet did at home, well, I don't know what she did when I was away, but I suppose she did some cooking or she with some of the house girls or doing whatever ladies do. Roomba was very different from Bolu. Describe the environment and life at Roomba. Oh, Roomba was a different kettle of fish altogether. They, they were black. Uh, when I used to go at night time to try and squell or look at if any students were not in bed, they would close their eyes and close their mouths and I couldn't see them because they were so black. But when they opened their mouths and I put the torch on their teeth, I could see them because they had white teeth and they had white eyes. And that's the only way I could, I could catch them. There was a, uh, a mine close by too, wasn't there? Yeah, the Panguna Mine was just opening up in the mountains up at the back in the Crown Prince Ranges. And they were also building down a new wharf down at Lolaho. They moved a whole mountain out into the sea and built a wharf there. There were 9,000 men there, 
and there were 10,000 men up at Panguna on the mine and they were an absolute nuisance to us. What was different about the culture between Bolu and Roomba? Well, I suppose the culture would be different because they had more money down there at Bolu. Their one talks were working up in the mine and they had what's a, a... What's a one talk? Oh, that's their relatives. One talk, we used to say they could talk the same language. But when you had the people up in New Guinea, they had all sorts of languages and and so in the end they all talk pidgin. But they are by students, they would talk English. What was most satisfying about Roomba? Again, seeing the students coming up and going through grade six and becoming good uh, citizens for their church and for their um, culture and for their island and their work. And a lot of them were picked up by outside people working in stores because they knew they were reliable and they didn't steal. From Roomba, you went to Madonna on the coast southeast of Port Moresby. More changes for you and Betty. Describe Madonna and tell me what it was like living and teaching there. We heard last week about the snakes. It was a, a totally different area again. We were now down on the coast of the south of uh, southern part of New Guinea. We weren't in a pigeon country anymore. We were in Mortu language, which I never ever learned and I never tried to learn. There was wind day and night. Our house was up on top of the hill, or three quarters of the way up a hill. The school was on the flat area down at there in the bottom part, and they, they talked a different language, but they soon turned to learn English, which I taught, and that's all I spoke to them. And they were a fine bunch of people that I had working with me, and the teachers were good. I had a Musao teacher, and I had a one from Bougainville, and I had one from the local. And I always insisted that we have one teacher from the local area so that if we ever had trouble, that he could go in and talk their language and that would help the situation considerably. Your house at Madonna was the best I think you had while you were in the islands, wasn't it? That's correct. That's correct. It was only a new, new one. It was a flat-roofed roof on the top. We could overlook, we had to walk up a very steep hill to get there. Again, just like on Moose out, but a little bit steeper. And we did have a vehicle there, but uh, the climate there was a little bit hot, but we always get a cold breeze occasionally when we had the different change in winds for winter time. There was kind of a two seasons there, hot, and then a little bit, a little bit less, not so hot. Tell me about the plantation at Madonna. We had a big coconut plantation there, uh, and that was done by contractors. We had four, three or four contractors who would do it on a basis of how they would get paid on the amount of coconuts that they collected and then how much they made when they made them into copra. Did any of the students from the school work on the plantation? No, no. How did you manage to run these sort of operations on the sides? You know, well, you've got your teaching duties. How, how, how time-consuming was it to have to consider, you know, the operation of a plantation as well? Well, that, I reckon I used to work 20 hours a day, quite often, but not quite that much, but I had medical work. It to probably seemed like that. <laughs> it seemed like, yes. And I tell you what, on Friday night I would just drop into bed after I'd been to worship and I'd just drop into bed and you wouldn't see or hear me until 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock next morning. 
These extra duties seem typical of life for you as a missionary teacher. They're pretty typical too of teachers in Australia who often do quite a lot of extracurricular work as well. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. But it's, it's a little bit harder in the islands because you've got different languages and different cultures and different climate, so forth. But you get used to it after a while. You just, as you go from Moose out to Roomba down to Madonna, three different kind of climates, three different kind of people. Uh, but you adjust to it after a while. But I don't Madonna only for two years. You mentioned fishing as one of your recreations. Was there anything else that you were able to do that was recreational for you? I'd do a little bit of painting occasionally. I could paint a little bit well up there if I had time. Um, I mean, of course, we had pathfinders to do or Boy Scouts jobs to do. But I'll just put one thing in here. We did have a small cop, no, cocoa, cocoa plantation at Roomba. That's different to copra. But when down at Madonna we had copra and at Moosea we had copra or coconuts. The income from the plantations, was that used to help support the school? Yes, very much so, very much so. If we didn't have that, we would have been very poor students. Tell me about building the church at Madonna with the grade six students. When I first got to Madonna, they showed me around the different school and what their buildings. I walked into the church it was a thatch roof church made of all national materials and I heard a plop at my feet and I looked down and there was a snake. It had fallen out of the rafters of the roof and went down next to my feet. It went one way and I went the other. I vowed and declared that within my reach and time we would get dispose of that one and we would build a new church. Now, they didn't have very much money. They had $900 in the kitty for the church that they'd saved over the years and I had a meeting with the elders and the teachers and I said can we put that money towards building a church they said yes we would like that very much so Mr McFarlane I said all right let's make a plan for it and so I made a plan it was going to be a big A-frame with a cement floor and uh, iron roof all right they said who's going to build it I said well I've got some pretty big grade six students here with me. I've got a few men teachers here with me and I've got myself. I don't know much. I've only done woodwork at high school. I know how to make a few joints, but that's about as far as I know. But I think we can do a, make a job. So we looked around. Now, what were we going to do for foundations? We didn't have any wood of any kind, any trees on, the, on, on our plantation, on our school except uh, the coconuts, and you couldn't use them. And so I went over to a sawmill over the other side of Cupiano, which would have been about 10 kilometres away from where we were, including five or six kilometres of water. And I went to the manager and I said, Sir, I, we want to build a church, but we've only got this X number of dollars. What can you do to help me? And so they, he said, all right, I know the SDA church. I've got some of your boys working for us, and they're very good people, and I'd like to help you. So he gave me enough second-grade timber, which was still good timber, for a very, very good price, and a lot of it he gave to me for free. And we brought it all over by Lakatoy or a canoe, and then onto the back of the tractor and the trailer and brought it up to the school. That's all very well. We had timber. Now we had to have 
iron to make the posts in to put them into the ground. But we couldn't use the timber to make boxes because it was too precious. So those days we used to buy, we call them an army biscuit, about have, uh, run about three or four inches square, made of flour and so forth, very hard, and we'd sell them three for 10, for 10 cents to the students. So we had all these tins, so we put these tins out where we marked it out on the where we're going to build the, the church. It was a big church, and uh, it would hold about 200 people all together, and a big A-frame, and we put the tins into the ground, and then we filled, and then we wondered what we're going to put in there for foundations inside that. So we had a lot of old Land Rovers in the place and old machinery, and we pulled it all apart. We had gearboxes pulled apart. We had axles. We had you name it inside that cement, and inside that tin, and we filled it up with concrete and put the bars inside so we could put the A-frame and bolt them onto that into the wood. And eventually we built the house, built the school. Now what are we going to do for iron for the roof? We wanted 20 foot sheets and they had to be cut, some of them had to be cut to put another five or six feet on the end of it. So we ordered that from down at KVang, no, not KVang, out uh, Port Moresby. And um, then somebody came down from the headquarters in Rebel and they came down to check on my accounts. And he asked, where did this money come from for all this iron? and cost quite a few hundred dollars. And the treasurer said it came out of the ground. He said, what do you mean out of the ground? You don't get money out of the ground? He said, no, Mr. McFarlane grew a big patch of sweet potatoes and pumpkins by the hundreds, and he sold those to the village people, and all the money went into building this church. And the whole church cost just over a 1,000 pounds, and it was all paid for time we'd finished. But now we had a church, we had a floor, we had the rostrum up, but we had nowhere for the students to sit. What were they going to sit on? Concrete. No, that wasn't any good for us. So I said to the, uh, the students and to the st teachers, if you can all pay one dollar each, we will buy a, a plank and we'll make them into seats. There won't be any backs on them. And so I went again over to the uh, to the sawmill man. I said, this is what we want. The church is built. Now we want a some planks for the wood. We need about 30 of them. All right, he said, I'll give them to you for a dollar each. They're about eight or nine feet long and about eight inches wide and about an inch and a half thick. Good planks. Brought them home and then we made them into the uh, seats and the students were as pleased as punch. And so was I, but it wasn't quite finished. We put a little veranda on the front. We were going to have it dedicated the next year, but I was transferred elsewhere. From Madonna, you moved to Better Karma in the Solomon Islands. Your amenities were much better there, I understand, and you were less isolated than previously. What was life like there? Hectic. <laughs> Before I left Port Moresby, they told me I was going to be in charge of a group of students which is similar to what Boy Scouts would be. We, had, we call them pathfinders, but they would have been a Boy Scout type of thing. I was going to teach Form 5, and this is high school, Form 3, Form... No, Form yeah, 3, History, Form 2... You might need to explain what a Form 5 is in those days. That would have been an equivalent these days to your year, the top of the uh, high school. What year would that be? Sixth Form used to be... 
sort of um, grade 12. So fifth form yes. would have been grade 11. About a grade 11, yes. And then uh, form two would have been the second year of high school. Form one would have been the first year of high school. So form one would have been year seven. Yes, and then, and then year eight. Form two, year eight. Form three would have been year nine. Yes. So you're pretty busy with teaching the teaching in high school. Very. You were a primary teacher, but you are now teaching high school. Did you feel prepared for that? Not really. And I'll just go back a minute. When I did my teacher training in Brisbane many, many years before this, on my certificate it said high, primary school and grade 8, which is equivalent to the first year high school. The education department at Honeyara said, high school, right, you can teach high school. And I got my certificate for that. Because year eight used to be in primary, That's didn't right. it, in those yes. days when you were teaching yes. in Brisbane? Yes. What do you remember most about Better Karma? The children wanted to learn. The young people were adults those days in higher school. I had one or two who were married. Um, they didn't last very long. But um, no, they wanted to learn. They were civil. They were kind. They were never had a man swearing, not in my language. Not in English anyway. They might have been in their own language, but that was a no-no as far as I was concerned. I wasn't the headmaster. I was just an ordinary teacher there. But they plied me with lots of jobs to do because they think, oh, he can do this store, he can do this and he can do that. He's done it all before. And I thought I was going to have a holiday, but no, I had more work there than I'd ever had before in my life. We worked a long, long time, and my wife, she made up all the English for me. We just carried on grade six to grade seven for English and just went on that. Uh, she did a lot of typing for me, printing for me, and she came over eventually and she helped teach the English as well. Never got paid for it, by the way, either. She didn't never, never got paid. What was most satisfying about your work at Better Karma? Seeing the young people grow into Christian lives being good citizens and being able to go out and help both in the government and in the uh, schools and going on to higher education. Your life as a missionary teacher required a lot of sacrifices. What were the rewards for you? Um, well, the rewards were seeing the young people growing in the Christian way. Uh, coming out as good students, educating good education, uh, as I said before, doctors, nurses, ministers. Uh, some went in to become uh, captains of the boats, which took a lot of training, and they made themselves quite useful, both in the villages and in Honiara and in different parts of the Solomons. Did your motivation ever change? No. No. The reason is because I was enjoying my work, even though it was hard and tiring, and I was helping the people, I, my motivation never changed. So it sounds as if you would do it all again if you had the opportunity. If I was younger, yes, I'd do it again, but I'm too old to do it now. Now, these days, most schools in Papua New Guinea, Bougainville, Solomon Islands, would be... Um, not run by expatriates? No, no. There wouldn't be any expatriates up there now teaching now. They may have them in no. They wouldn't even be in the inspectors now, I don't think. That's a sign of success, isn't it? Oh, yes, very much so, very much so.
So those schools actually provided a foundation for a new life mm-hmm. for people in those cultures. That's right, very much so. We are the foundation. We laid the foundation, the Europeans, and then we taught the nation, natives how to carry on with our methods, and they in turn stepped up to the plate and took over. When you went to the islands, you um, had also had some experience of teaching in Australia and you were able to take those methods to the island. Do you think that those methods endured? Oh, yes, very much so. I taught for six years in one school before I went up to the island and I was taught there by a, a headmaster who was determined that I was going to learn how to teach and I did learn how to teach and he was very strict and I was very strict with my students and with my teachers in my in the islands. Teaching was very results oriented then, wasn't it? You, yes. know, you were looking for the results with your students. That's right. What did this principle do for you before you went to Papua New Guinea? Very much. He he took the time for the first few months when I first went out there. He realised I hadn't I didn't have a that kind of a background for education. But he said, all right, Milton, what you learned at high, at um, training college, I'm now going to teach you how to teach. And he did. And with it took me about, I was at the school for six years, and for the first two years I was kind of, you know, mediocre, getting a little bit better, a little bit better. And for the last two or three years, I was up with these other top teachers. And he said, I was a pretty good teacher by that time. So it would have been pretty good, a pretty good foundation for exactly, teaching. Exactly, yes. very much so. Especially when you're on your own yes. and you're not having a lot of contact with other That's right. European colleagues. And then I was able to pass that knowledge on to the teachers that had been trained from the national teachers to pass it on to them to show them how to, to teach different subjects as well. And they learned a lot just from me and from Betty doing it. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, Milton will tell us about his early life and experiences. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest is Milton McFarlane. Milton was a missionary teacher in the South Pacific for 17 years in the 1960s and 1970s. In this last part of the program, Milton will tell us about his early life. Milton, where were you born and where did you live in your early life? I was born in Brisbane in 1929 on the 29th of April. That's in Queensland. Where were some of the places that you lived? When Dad, Dad being a minister, we were transferred up from Brisbane to Rockhampton, from Rockhampton down to Bundaberg, from Bundaberg to Adelaide, 
from Adelaide up to Port Pirie and then back to Adelaide. Tell me about your family. Well, there was only myself. I was the firstborn in the family and then my sister was born in Adelaide some years later. Tell me about your parents. Uh, my father was Australian. He was born in Aberdeen in New South Wales. My mother was um, Australian as well. Her parents were farmers up in Hayden in, in uh, Queensland and she was born, I'm not too sure, I think it's in Brisbane. How did they come to meet? At college, at what? Avondale College. Dad was doing ministerial course and I think Mum was doing a Bible course as well. Tell me about your sister. Heather was born in Adelaide uh, and she was only 10 months old when my father died. But today she was a, she's a teacher, she's retired. She married a teacher from New Zealand and uh, they went through to the island as well. They taught at Kambubu in, in um, Papua New Guinea and then they went across to Fiji as well. Tell me about your father. What was he like? What do you remember about him? I was only 10 when Dad died, but I still remember him as a, a fine gentleman, hardworking. He loved doing the church work and studying with people and preaching. Uh, very good father, but if I ever misbehaved, I knew it. Hmm. So he was... Very strict. Strict as well. But kind. Now, your dad died under disastrous circumstances. Yeah. What happened? He was coming home from a Bible study from one of his um, people he was working with, teaching or working with, yes, and he was coming across a Dudley Park and coming across to a, a railway line and one train had gone through but the wiggle waggles were still going, the lights were still going and he thought, oh, well, they, they usually go for a few more minutes after, they've, after the train's gone. But unbeknownst to him, a train came the other way and hit Dad and killed him instantly. What impact did that have on the family? It was a disaster, absolute disaster. I idolised my father and Mum was absolutely devastated and Baby was less than 18 months old, uh, Heather was. And so it was a very, very hard thing to put up with for, for many years. What did your family do when your father died? Did you stay in Adelaide? No, no. The conference were very good to us the, and they paid their, our fares up to Queensland. We went by train to Queensland and I stayed with my grandparents and then my mother came down with her uncle and her brother and they came down to Kurumbong to find land. They were going to have, they wanted to put me into a school where I could do all my education together. They looked at Warunga first of all, but there was only a primary school there, but nothing further. So mum said, no, we'll go to Kurumbong because they can go through primary, high school, and then go to college. Hmm. And so they, her brother and her uncle came down and built mum's house in six weeks. And they're still standing today in a perfectly good house. You spent a bit of time with your grandparents. A lot of time. Tell me about some of the times that you had up there. Oh, and they they really made they spoiled me. I'm afraid because I was the only grandson at that time. Uh, I was the eldest of all the bunch, and um, they 
helped me a lot. And I learned to milk cows. I learned to ride horses. Granddad would put me on the back of his uh, plough and he'd sit me on his knee while he had two or three horses in front ploughing the ground. And I, he let me hold the, the reins, which I thought was really great to hold the reins. And the horses knew where to go, of course. They weren't worrying about me at the back. But that was fun. And so they taught me and I used to drink the, the milk straight out of the cow and we had fun on the farm. You were tall and skinny as a kid. Very much And you so. had some health problems. What was the health problem? Well, they first started off with, they thought it was going to be was my kidneys. And I spent a lot of time down the Sydney Adventist Hospital, mum going up and down from Kurumbong where we were living at the time. And uh, they were about to take my one of my kidneys out. But then Dr. Harrison said, no, he said, this man is too, this boy is too young to have that taken out. He was about 16 at the time. And uh, he said, uh, we'll have a look and see what we can do. And so they went back and they said, no, we'll take out his appendix. So they took my appendix out and it was, I was better in a couple of days. And it was the appendix that was causing all the trouble. But you had a, an extended period where you were quite ill and you were missing a lot of school. I, I missed and, a lot of school. And uh, you couldn't play games because That's of right. the illness and so yeah. forth. Yes, I was very handicapped. I was a skinny sort of a guy. Were thin those days, and not very hell, not very well at all. I never played. I played one match of cricket. I think I only played one decent ball, and I got a four for that. And I've never played football since, or cricket since. Uh, I've taught it over the years, but they would give me a long brush and a long handle, and I would go around and knock down all the cobwebs around the school while the boys were playing for, uh, cricket or doing sports. I guess that was a bit isolating. It was. I felt really out of it, but then again, I knew I couldn't do the work. I couldn't play. I couldn't do anything like that at when all. When you had your appendix out and the kidneys improved, what impact did that have on your health? Oh, a vast difference. I was a new boy. Were you Completely. able to participate in games yes, and that sort I of thing at that point? Then. Yes. How did you meet Betty? <laughs> we went to school together in high school, but I never thought much of Betty then. She was only a little thin girl myself, and I was a tall, skinny boy. I used to torment her and so forth. But then we went to college and she was doing a secretarial course and I was doing art course or doing subjects. And uh, we just, I don't think, even talked together. And then there was a picnic and we went down to Nora Head by bus and uh, there were three girls in the, in the bus and I thought, no, I don't like that one, no, I don't like that one. I'll go and sit next to Betty. I think I know Betty a little bit better now. So I sat next to Betty and that was the beginning of our friendship. And we kept company for five years. How did she manage all this teasing that you did? She got over it. <laughs> I made up, I made up for it <laughs> by treating her very nicely. <laughs> yes, we were, we were compatible. But they used to say, there goes that McFarland over there with only one lung. <laughs> and you go, they, they, they go to, the, to Bet's mum. You know, that boy living, going with your girlfriend, your daughter, he's only got one lung, you know. <laughs> and she used to laugh. She said, no, 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 I know Milton better than that. He's got two lungs. He's perfectly healthy now. He's okay. <laughs> when did you get married? Uh, in 1952 in December. 1952 at the, um, the old Avondale Church those days, at Wooden Church. Now, Betty died a couple of years ago, didn't she? Yeah, she died, yes. She had... 
She died of cardiac eventually, but before that she had a lot of fluid on her. And going back a year before that, she had a fall up in Tamworth and, and, and had square, squash four discs in her, in her spine. From then on, she kind of went downhill all the way. Mm. But every night she'd say to me, Milty, she used to call me Milty, uh, I want to die. I don't want any more pain. How did you come to be a teacher? Through the love of young people. I was doing a lot of what you call Boy Scouts or what we used to call them as Pathfinders. And I just loved working with children and uh, I'd go on a train up to certain towns in New South Wales and bring back a group of students and bring them back or boys. And then we'd go to camps down at Araring or sometimes we went down to down near Sydney on near the Hawkesbury there. And... Um, I was in charge of Pathfinders, and I did all my JMB work, and I became a Pathfinder myself, a leader as well. How did this lead into a teaching career? Well, after we were married, we moved up to Brisbane, and Beth got work in the conference office because she was a qualified secretary. And I looked around, and I got a job for ten months cleaning, which was the best job I've ever had, I think, and got. The easiest job I ever did to clean a big firm, uh, offices and so forth. And I learned to drive bulldozers and trucks and cars and even was in a Rolls Royce for a change. And I drove trucks on there with them as well. And I, after I'd been cleaning, one of my Adventist friends who were at the church said, look, we're doing the teacher training course now over at, at uh, um, Ithaca. I think you ought to come and try and be a teacher, Milton. So I went and sat for the whatever I had to do, and they said, yes, we'll accept you to be a teacher. And so I became a teacher in 12 months. In those 12 months, we learned, I think, a three-year course in one year because I was so, so desperately in need of teachers at that time for the state school. And we had five Adventists that day, well, that year that I was there, and they're all dead except me. When you had your teaching appointment, you were sent to Ironside first? Yes. No. I was sent to a school out at Oxley, and I was only there for three weeks. And then they sent me to Ironside State School. Now, this was one of the premier state schools in Queensland because yeah. it was just down from the university, wasn't That's it? That's right, yes. It had over a 1,000 students, and we had 33 teachers. I imagine the students would have been pretty motivated, students? Very much so, very well, much so. Well-run school? Very well-run. So this was a great environment for you to be in in your early teaching career. Exactly, exactly. The headmaster would have been about six foot nine, and he was a big man across ways, and he towered above me, and I was six foot three at the time, and he towered above me. And he said to me, all right, Milton, what you learned at, at college, forget. I will now teach you how to teach. And he did. And I was there for six years. So he was a results-oriented man, obviously. Exactly, exactly. And he was very pleased with me. He didn't want me to leave. He didn't. When, he, when I told him I was leaving to go to New Guinea, Milton, stay here. Oh, you can stay here for the rest of your life. You don't have to do any country work. You stay here and I'll look after you. But, of course, I made up my mind to go out into the church work. Milton, what have you learned from your life that really stands out for you what do you know now at the end of your life that you think is really important for people to know? Depending on God. 
You've got to depend on him for everything. I believe in prayer. Prayer gets me through all my life. Even today as I'm doing this interview now, I suppose I would have prayed at least six times today to get through this interview here. But I keep with him. He's looking after me. He's looked after me. I've had car accidents. I've had other accidents. I've had men chasing me with machetes in the islands. Uh, being very cross with me and angry with me. The Lord protected me. Prayer is the most important thing in my life. Those stories that you told us last week about the um, the snakes and the, and the crocodiles and uh, the, the circumstances that you found yourself in, it seemed as if you did have a bit of a charmed life surviving, surviving some of those experiences. Well, as I've just said... If- you, you pray in the morning and ask for guidance, and you pray that you will get wherever you go, he will look after you. Of course, silly me sometimes, I put myself in a position where I shouldn't be, uh, but that's only human nature. You think you're invisible, and you can do things that in this whatever it is, and you can do things that you shouldn't be doing, but you think you can do it. Uh, but I suppose that would have happened maybe one or twice or twice in my life. But most times, I've always had my angel with me. And everywhere I go, he, he with, he's with me. I've been in a couple of car accidents, uh, not serious ones, but, you know, um, so forth. And we've been on boats where we've been thinking we were going to drown and the boat was going to be lost, which we got through safely. Uh, we've been in different experiences in aeroplanes where we thought we, we could have been downed, but we didn't. The Lord brought us through. So it's only prayer that's helped me get through to where I am today, and I'm 85 now, going on 86. What's your favourite text in the Bible? Be strong and of good courage. Be not frightened, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1 9. Why is that your favourite? Well, I've been to lots of places that. Before, if I wasn't a Christian, I would never have gone to. For instance, in Musau, I didn't... The Musau had only been... They'd been done about or missionarized or became Christians maybe 30 years before I got there. Before that, they were very uh, frightening people, very angry people, and uh, a lot of men wouldn't even go up there there those days they were killed. And they were never cannibals, but they were very hard people to get on with. Uh, other places where I went to, and they were savages, but the Lord blessed me and protected me when I went through them. Tell me about the time with the machetes. We had when I have girls and boys in in classes together. Uh, one was on the western side and one lived on the eastern side and the, the eastern side and the western side wouldn't talk to each other. But this particular day, this girl started keeping, well, not keeping company, but we're talking to this boy from the other side and we got to hear of it and so we said, well, we've got to send you home for a little while because you've broken the rules of the school. So the staff said, yes, we'll send her home till the end of the term. When she went home to her village, she then told her father a completely different story to what had happened, actually happened, and he was very angry because he had a big shame. 
And so he came up to me with a big machete and he started to... And I was just coming back from the hospital and as I came up through the, the road into our house, I saw this man waving his machete at me and very, very angry. And he was going to kill me at the time. He was so angry. And, and I thought, well, Lord, you better help me on this one because I can't do anything. I can't, I'm helpless. I haven't got a, anything in my hand to fight against him or whatever, but you can help me. And at that time, by providential, I don't know how or why, but a minister was there at the time, as Colin Winch, and he walked out onto the veranda with my wife, and the man said, oh, there's two people here, I'd better stop. And so he put his knife down, and I took hold of it, and he said, oh, I'm very sorry, Master, me sorry, me sorry, me sorry. It won't happen again, me sorry. And I said, well, you better have a prayer about this, and so we had prayer with him, and he went away. But I learned a very valuable lesson that day. If you have to send anybody home from school for whatever reason, you always write a letter to the parent, give a letter to the district director, and put a letter in my file in the in the school and let them know exactly what happened. That could have been a potentially very serious it could situation. Have been, I could have been dead that day. If it hadn't you, have been Colin there, I would have been dead. You mentioned another occasion. What was that like? That was in Bougainville. The Bougainville boys, we had some moose owls there. We had some other people there working up in the, in the mine. And on certain days, we let the students, after they'd had their meal, they could go out and play volleyball. Ball. That's the only pair of patch that we had on there. They could do it, have a net, and then they could play volleyball. And at a certain time, I said, all right, I blew the whistle. All right, boys and girls, go home now. You can go to the back and we're going to have worship now or have lunch or have tea first and then have worship and then we have study period and this particular man was a moose owl by the way I know it was a moose owl in Bougainville Bougainville I think he's Bougainville and he said no I'm not going home I want to keep playing I said no it's finished you you must go home and with that I walked away and the next minute I turned around and here he was chasing me with a machete now, I was praying pretty hard this time again because I knew my life was in complete danger. I was about to get beheaded. And um, Beringer, who was my toll eye, uh, my headmaster with me, I was the principal, he was the headmaster, and he came up and he said, what are you doing to this fellow? Oh, me sorry, me sorry. And he put his machete down and he went away. But before he went away... Varinka said to him, don't you ever put your foot back inside this property again. You'll be in trouble because you'll get the police will come out from from Kieta and they will arrest you. The funny thing is, or the thing maybe 12 months later, the custom was of the people that when a person was going away, like I was, I was transferred to go down to Madonna, they would line up, they would sit you down, and Bet and I were sitting at a, on a table with two chairs, and the people would come along and they would put something in your hand, and that was money or 10 cents or whatever it was. This man came along with a saucepan. He said, I'm sorry for what I did. Here's a saucepan for you. I've still got the saucepan at home here today. I've never used it, but it's there. Milton, would you like to close our program today yes. with a prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've been able to talk here today about your work and your leading and your prayers have been answered. 
I pray to the Lord that whoever listens to this program today or whenever, they will be inspired and I'll come to love you like we do. And thank you for all your answering of your prayers over the years. This prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Milton, thank you for talking with me. I know that there's been some things that have happened in your life that have been difficult to talk about. Thank you for sharing those things with us. Wish you well for the future. And uh, I'm sure the stories will be an inspiration to people who hear them. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another guest. Bye for now. God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.